Namaste viewers, welcome to Sangam Talks. I am Rinku Vadera, your host for the evening. We are living in interesting times indeed. A lot of hidden histories and truths are seeing the light of the day. And one of the agents of these winds of change has been Padmashri Professor Minakshi Jain, our guest for this evening. Professor Minakshi Jain is a historian interested in the cultural and historical milieu of ancient and medieval India. Currently a fellow at Nehru Memorial Museum and Library, she was also a senior fellow at the Indian Council of Social Science Research and member of the Governing Council at the Indian Council of Historical Research. A prolific writer, she has produced a lot of material on history. To list her publications, they go Flight of Deities and Rebirth of Temples in 2019, The Battle for Rama, Case of the Temple at Ayodhya in 2017, Sati, Evangelicals, Baptist Missionaries and the Colonial Discourse in 2016, Rama and Ayodhya in 2013, The India They Saw, Foreign Accounts of India from the 8th to the mid-19th century in three volumes in 2011 and Parallel Pathways. In 2020, she was awarded the Padma Shri by the Government of India for her contribution in the field of literature and education. We are here to talk about Minakshi Ji's latest book, Vasudev Krishna and Mathura, which covers a lot of ground. It traces the history of image worship in India and the literary, sacred and epigraphic evidence around historic Krishna and also uncovers a lot of history around the evolution of the Bhagavad cult. Welcome to the show, Minakshi ji. It's a delight to be uh, talking on these subjects to a very interested audience. And you know, just one thing if I can say, how the scene has changed uh, in the last two decades. When I wrote my first book on Ayodhya, it was difficult to find anyone ready to publish it. You know, and from that state till the journey that I have travelled today, I see the enthusiasm for every book of mine growing by leaps and bounds. So, you know, and social media, talks like yours, they have played such an important role in popularizing my books and popularizing my ideas and themes because as many people as watch a podcast or a Zoom telecast, that many will never read the book because they're not professional historians, but they're interested in the subject. So I have to say that social media and platforms like yours have really played a very, very important part in my journey. And just for the record, I gave a very long talk on the Ayodhya controversy at Sangam Talks many, many years ago. I think that was my first or second talk on the subject. And I still remember, you know, how many people became aware of the intricacies of the debate because of that talk. So thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being with us, Professor Jain. Um, I would like to so show our audience this beautiful book, which has numerous illustrations, numerous plates, and uh, published by Aryan Books International, who have played an important part in Minakshi Ji's journey in this uh, journey of history of hers. 
the first thing that I wanted to ask you, Professor Jain, is what is the historicity of Vasudev Krishna yes. in the Upanishadic texts? And I will ask you about the Shukraniti Sar and the Arthashastra later, as yeah. you've pointed out the references. Yeah. Uh, you know, first thing I want to say is that scholars who translated the Chandogya Upanishad were not looking for evidence for the historicity of Krishna. And for the believers of Vasudev Krishna, this is a matter of no interest because for them, uh, they don't need historical uh, validation from scholars that yes, Krishna was a historical person. It doesn't matter to them because Krishna is a part of their consciousness, their being, their faith, and they're not interested in scholarly debates and controversies on this subject. So the first point that I would like to make is that this issue came to the fore almost 70, 80 years ago. And it was by accident. There were certain scholars who were translating the Chandogya Upanishad into English. And while they were translating, they came across this reference to a person, Devki Putra Krishna. Now that intrigued these scholars because they said that, you know, it's a very specific and clear reference to an individual who's Devki Putra Krishna. And according to them and according and rightly so, Devki Putra Krishna is not a common name. And we don't in our uh, spiritual, intellectual, historical journey, we do not come across anyone else named Devki Putra Krishna. So the Chandokya Upanishad is very, very clear that the person they're talking about is the son of Devki. So, you know, this really intrigued them. They were not looking for establishing the historicity of Krishna. Let me make this clear again. They were translating a text and in the text, they came across this verse and they said, this is very interesting because why should the text mention Devki Putra Krishna? So that is where the whole story started. But when they went further, they found that the Chandogya Upanishad also mentions Krishna's teacher. In fact, the reason for mentioning Devki Putra Krishna was to tell about his teacher. His teacher's name is given. And to tell what Devki Putra Krishna learnt from his teacher. So, the Chandogya Upanishad is the first literary evidence that we have of the mention of Devki Putra Krishna, his teacher, and the teachings that he imbibed from his teacher. Now, these are discoveries or scholarship that dates back seven, eight decades ago, as I said, at least. So, it's not something that is a new discovery. You know, when we talk about this subject today, there is a pitfall that we should avoid. We have to re repeatedly emphasize that all the evidence that is cited in my book is evidence which is a century old or seven, eight decades ago. So this evidence was all there waiting for it to be put together. Now, these scholars, uh, when they uh, learned about 
the teachings of Krishna's teacher, they said it's very similar to what Krishna himself taught in the Gita. So that is where their study ended. They did not go beyond that because, as I said, they were only interested in translating a text. But after that, some other scholars, they started looking at other works of before common era. And the first person they came across was Panini. Now, you know, there, is a, there was a very, very renowned scholar, Vasudev Sharan Agarwal. He wrote a classic book, India as known to Panini. And he makes a very important point that Panini is perhaps the, one of the very few ancient writers whose text has come down to us without any addition or subtraction. You know, when we talk about ancient texts, we can take the example of Ramayana and Mahabharata. And we know that the Ramayana and the Mahabharata that we have today is not what was originally written because over the course of centuries, people have added. So, you know, it's very difficult uh, to know what was the original Ramayana and the Mahabharata, though, uh, you know, uh, this Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute, uh, Sukhthankar and his team tried to extract the critical edition of the Mahabharata. So, uh, according to Vasudev Sharan Agarwal, uh, this Panini's work has come down to us as it was, which means it is as valuable as an inscription. Because if you come across an inscription, that inscription is the way it was written originally. So he attaches great importance to Panini's work. And Panini's work is very important because Panini is writing rules of grammar. And in the rules of grammar, he says that when you are mentioning two people, the shorter name will come first and the longer name afterwards. You know, suppose you are mentioning Rinku and Minakshi. Rinku will come first because it's shorter and Minakshi will come second because it's a longer name. But he says that in the case of Arjun and Vasudev, this rule will not apply. Vasudev will always be mentioned first and Arjun second because Vasudev is the worshipful one. That means that in the time of Panini, that is 6th, 7th century before common era, Panini was already referring to Vasudev Krishna as the worshipful one. So we have the first reference in the Chandogya Upanishad which talks about Devki Putra Krishna and the teachings he learned from his guru. And Panini telling us that worship uh, Vasudev is a worshipful one. So that means that by the time of Panini, Krishna worship was quite prevalent. Uh, one thing that we have to emphasize is that whenever we give any example, we give an example so that people can readily understand what we are saying. We get given an example of something which everyone knows. So we can uh, deduce from this that in the time of Panini, Krishna worship was 
quite prevalent because he gives the example he says krishna is the worshipful one so why would he say that and uh, last point that i want to make is that you know uh, all this evidence that we have which goes so much which you know it's so interesting most of this evidence is before common era chandogya upanishad is before common era patanjali is before common era and the next person uh, uh, sorry panani is before common era patanjali is before common era megasthenes the greek ambassador to india is before common era so there is a lot of evidence before the common era which is really there is no question of it being tampered with or you know uh, somebody uh, meddling with it or you know uh, creating a, a evidence which doesn't exist because this evidence is thousands of years old uh, that's a very interesting example that you mentioned professor jain um can you also shed some light on what kotelia says in his arthashastra and yes. uh, we have uh, patanjali's mahabhashya which so, tells us about the worship of krishna yes so can i take patanjali first ji because patanjali is linked to panini though of course patanjali is later he is around the second century before common era and the thing about patanjali is that he is supposed to have been an inhabitant of mathura you know supposed to have lived in mathura or near mathura now patanjali he is also writing explaining the rules of panini and he in his uh, text mahabhashya he gives seven examples and all those seven examples are related to incidents in the life of krishna so that again reinforces the argument that krishna again you know i'm making the same point that when we give examples we give examples which don't need an explanation which we give examples which are accessible to everyone and which everyone knows about that is that is why we give examples so that it reaches the audience and uh, patanjali uh, gives seven examples and all those seven examples which he gives of rules of grammar they are related to incidents from the life of krishna you know uh, so like krishna killing kans so these uh, this is very very powerful evidence that krishna worship was uh, quite widespread before the common era you know and you mentioned uh, kotilya's arthashastra i would just like to uh, mention one interesting thing that i found in kotilya's arthashastra of course there are references to temples how worship is done in temples temples for every city has a temple you know temples and there's a plethora of evidence on temples and the forms of worship in the arthashastra but you know according to me what i found most interesting that kotilya uh, has a chapter on charms magic and spells you know uh, so he gives an example that there is a mantra or a spell and when you chant that it induces sleep now this is very very interesting because we are all familiar with this story that when krishna was born the entire 
Mathra went off to sleep. You know, so the prison guard went to sleep and how the father could easily take baby Krishna out of the prison and uh, take him to safety. So, Kautilya mentioning that there are spells which induce sleep. So, I mean, obviously this story was also very well known in Kautilya's time. Why would he why would he mention it? You know, the thing is that uh, uh, over the last uh, half decade or so, uh, we have actually lost touch with our sacred texts and we have been taught to regard them as, not, not to regard them as seriously, you know, as serious stuff and to dismiss them as, you know, myths or not to be taken seriously. But how can you dismiss all these writers of before common era? And they never knew that this is going to be a subject of debate 2000 years later. They just wrote what was the current general uh, knowledge at that time. You know, and for Cotillia to say that these um, spells uh, induce sleep is something which is, I think, very, very fascinating. At least I found it very fascinating. And can I just give one more example before common era? Two examples I want to give. One is uh, Megasthenes. Megasthenes was the Greek ambassador to the court of Chandragupta Maurya. And of course, he, his book has not survived intact. Only bits and pieces have survived. But in that book, Megasthenes mentions Mathura as the land of the Vrishni clan. The Vrishnis, we know that Krishna and his family were from the Vishni clan. And Megasthenes, who's an outsider, he did not invent anything. He wrote only what he heard and what he saw. So for Megasthenes to identify Mathura with Krishna is also very, very important piece of evidence which we cannot look away. And final evidence that I want to uh, mention, if I may, you know, when Alexander uh, attacked India, also before common era, and he, according to historians who wrote at that time, they wrote that when Porus's army was marching to confront Alexander, they carried an image of Krishna before them. Because that image would be the surest incentive for the soldiers to defend the image and to fight the enemy. So imagine at the time of Alexander's invasion, they are saying that Porus carried in, his Porus's army carried an image of Krishna. So, you know, we can ignore all this evidence at our peril. Again, I want to repeat, for the believers of Krishna, this has no interest because they are not bothered. This is a debate which concerns educated, so-called educated, because we've all been miseducated, actually. So, you know, uh, this is a debate for them, for the people, Krishna is a fact of life. But academics go on debating, was there a Krishna, was there not a Krishna? But I'm just making the point that all this evidence before common era, that means this evidence is more than 2000 years old. 
it has not been touched or tampered with and nobody till now has questioned the authenticity of this information so when we put this together we have to we do get a picture which we can ignore at our peril isn't it that was a very interesting tracing of history uh, through the ages professor jain uh, did we have instances of krishna worship outside the current boundaries of india as well very very interesting uh in the afghanistan area uh you know excavations were done by british archaeologists that also about 70 80 years ago and they found seven coins of a ruler and those coins they were almost identical and i have reproduced one of those coins in my book so those coins they show it's amazing they show krishna on one side and his elder brother sankarshan on the other side and how do we know because the symbols the signs that we attach to sankarshan and vasudev are there you know vasudev has that wheel the dharm chakra sankarshan was associated with the hull the plow and the axe so these coins and they are so beautifully preserved in pristine condition there is no damage to those coins and those coins outside india now again uh, in this uh, baltistan area uh, you know uh, a pakistani archaeologist he uh, excavated that area and, uh, for a long time and on those rocks he found you know paintings had been done and on two of those rocks again there was vasudev krishna and his brother and again there is no question of doubting the authenticity because the chin you know symbols that are associated with vasudev and sankarshan are there and one of them also has an inscription mentioning that these are the two people who are there in this painting so outside india that time there was no boundary you know there was no border in the strict sense that we have today so these seven coins found in afghanistan and these two paintings found on the rocks in this baltistan area they are absolutely very very important pieces of evidence and can i just add one thing you talked about outside india uh, generally we believe that krishna worship was a north india phenomena to begin with but there was a very important british epigraphist george bula b u h l e r you know he excavated uh, in the western ghats area and there he found an inscription which is still there and i put a photograph of that in my book and he says this is the most important inscription in this region as far as i am concerned why does he say that this inscription again dates back before common era so all the evidence that we have talked about till now is before common era and this inscription says 
this is an inscription by a family and it says that we have done 18 vedic yagyas so this family has done 18 vedic yagyas and this inscription they dedicate to vasudev krishna and sankarshan so that means outside the mathura region krishna worship had reached the western ghats because this inscription is there it had reached afghanistan so you know when we talk about north south divide uh, the and vedic religion and non vedic religion we should remember that these are divisions that have been uh, put in our mind by scholars in the last few decades but if we look at the evidence uh, without these blinkers then we find the picture of india very very different Professor Jain, this is fascinating that you mentioned the yagnifiers, the Vedic sacrifice. Uh, can you also shed light on how uh, the image worship evolved from Vedic sacrifices? Yes. What was the progression through yes. puja, as you have mentioned in your book on yeah. page six? Yeah. So the we all yeah. of uh, Shukraniti Sar. Yeah. So now we know that. Uh, Vedic religion, if we can use that word, which is not a correct word, but as a shorthand, it was concerned with sacrificial fires, yagyas, that you have create yagyas, you know, in small sheds, and you have these yagyas for so many things. You can have yagyas, and there are so many yagyas which are mentioned. So there is no uh, reference to image worship in the Vedic yagyas. It is yagyas that you perform. But according to scholars, this is not something that I am saying. It is very reputed and renowned scholars. I am giving the name, for example, of Anand Kumaraswamy. Kumaraswamy was an outstanding uh, expert on Indian art and Indian religion. So, people like Anand Kumaraswamy, they say that when this re Vedic religion came into contact with the beliefs of the wider section of the populace, then it gradually embraced that and the yagyas receded into the background. So the popular faith of the people was worshipping some form. So in the beginning, we do not find images. We find the deities represented by their symbols. Like uh, Buddha is never represented as Buddha. He is represented by his chin or his throne or, you know, when he is renouncing the world or when he has attained enlightenment. Now, it is very interesting that this tradition of image worship begins in the region of present-day Mathura around the same time for what we know today as Jains, Buddhists and Hindus. These are modern terminologies which I am using as a shorthand. So, the tradition of image worship develops simultaneously in Mathura among these sampradayas, faiths, paths, whatever you want to call them. And more interesting that the same set of artisans they or craftsmen, they made the images for Buddha, 
for Buddhists, Jains, and Hindus, what we call Hindus today. So there were colonies of artisans or artists or whatever you want to call them, and their services were available to everyone who wanted to avail of them. So the tradition began in the Mathura region around the same time by artisans who were rendering their service to all. In the beginning, the deity was not represented as a human being, only the chins were represented. You know, I've given you the example of Buddha. In the Jains, you had these small tablets, Ayag Patta. So, you know, they were just sacred symbols were inscribed on them. And uh, even for uh, Vishnu, for example, he is represented by Vishnupad. You know, and the symbols were so common to them. Everyone had swastik as a symbol. Everyone had chakra as the symbol. Everyone had people tree. So the symbols, sacred symbols were also conch, shank. So these were also very common. And from there, and uh, you know, in the beginning, we think today that stupas were only uh, built by the Buddhists. No, uh, the a Jain stoop was also found in Mathura. And uh, the British archaeologists excavated Mathura. They found the Jain stoop over there. And they say that it was almost coterminous with the Buddhist stoops. And just to give you an anecdote, example, you know the great Kushan ruler Kanishk, we've all heard of him, he was a devout Buddhist and uh, according to uh, one story, uh, once because Jains were also build, building stupas and so were Buddhists, so according to one story, Kanishk by mistake once went to a Jain stoop and started, started worshipping over there thinking it was a Buddhist stoop. So only when he realized that, you know, uh, I've entered the wrong stoop. So this, what I'm just saying, the symbols were shared. There was this story and this, that diet that we've been brought upon, that religions were always in conflict with each other, fighting each other, that is not uh, borne out by the actual facts on the ground. We can discuss this later. Uh, Professor Jin, I would like to, uh, like you to bring out this evidence of the Heliodorus pillar. Yes. And uh, why don't you show that coin which was found in Afghanistan? If you can show that. Is it uh, possible? I'll just find it, Professor. Yeah, yeah. then you can interrupt me in between. Uh, now this... This is the one? Yes. Yes, yes. This one. Yes, that's the one. So we can see that uh, it's very well preserved, you know. Sometimes they are, uh, they sometimes they are very well preserved because if they have been buried under a mound or something, then no damage gets done to them. All right. So now you raise this issue about the Heliodorus pillar. Now, why is this Heliodorus pillar so important for us? It is a pillar that is still standing there in Vidisha, Besnagar, and people still go there. Now this. Besnagar pillar inscription, or it's called the Garud pillar inscription. It has two inscriptions on the pillar, and they have survived without any damage. That whole pillar is beautifully preserved, except that Vishnu on top has been somewhat damaged. 
Now this uh, Heliodorus was a Greek ambassador to the court of an Indian king. And he also came to India before common era. So I'm going on emphasizing this before common era to show the antiquity. So this Heliodorus is the Greek ambassador to the court of an Indian king. And he comes to Besnagar and he erects this pillar, which has Garud on top. Part of that Garud is missing. That's why it's also called the Garud pillar inscription. Now, Heliodorus, uh, he has two inscriptions on this pillar, part one and part two. Part one uh, gives who he is, where he has come from, which king is he a representative or ambassador of, and to which Indian king has he come, and what is the year. So, those are factual details. But part two is very interesting. Part two quotes from a verse of the Mahabharata. Verbatim. So, uh, you know, the scholar H.C. Ray Chaudhary, he was the first one to note the connection between this verse in the Heliodorus pillar and a verse in Sri Parvan of the Mahabharata. He gives the exact reference. And he asked the question this Heliodorus, how does he know this verse? Which means that he was already familiar with the Mahabharata before he came to India. So, is it possible? Then he, uh, Professor H.C. Uh, Ray Chaudhary himself provides the answer. He says that the Mahabharata clearly says that, uh, that the author of the Mahabharata, he ordered that the Mahabharata should be first recited in Takshila. So, there is evidence from the Mahabharata that the Mahabharata was supposed to be recited first in Takshila and Hilodorus proves that he is from Takshila and he has heard the Mahabharata. So, you know, this absolute merger of the literary text and epigraphic evidence, it is so, so fascinating in the entire period that we discover when we discuss Krishna. It is not just not the Hilodorus pillar. Now, this Heliodorus pillar, uh, Alexander Cunningham, who was the director general of the ASI in the British period, he visited it. And when he visited it, he could not see the inscription. He did not know there's an inscription. Because, you know, pilgrims were coming even at that time. The pillar was erected in 2nd century before Common Era. And in early 20th century, when Alexander Cunningham goes to that site, he finds the whole pillar is covered with vermilion. You know, that lal would lagate hai. So, that means for 2000 years, people and they did not, people would not even have remembered who is Heliodorus. But they would know that this pillar has been created for an avatar of Vishnu because Garud is there and they were coming devotedly over the centuries, over the millennium. I mean, it is so fascinating, this story. So, Alexander Cunningham could not make out the date. He could not make out who has constructed it. And he never knew that there was a pillar, uh, there was an inscription on the pillar. Some decades later, 
you know, there was another uh, archaeologist, Lord Lake. He came there and he rubbed off part of the vermilion and he found some letter. So he said it is very clear that there is an inscription. And after that, they retrieved that inscription. And that is when we come to know that this has been erected in 2nd century BC. But Rinku, if I can continue this story of Heliodorus, uh, you know, then after that, that site has been excavated again and again. And the last excavations were in independent India in around 1967. So from the time of Alexander Cunningham, who went there, I think, in 1901, till 1967, archaeologists have been going to that area. And every time they have made new discoveries because, you know, uh, the debris gets buried. The Heliodorus pillar was standing straight. But what are the other evidence over there? So the archaeologists found that there were other pillars. But the top part of those pillars was missing. And they concluded that the other, other pillars were of other members of Vasudev Krishna's family, Sankarshan, etc., etc. Because we found the, uh, not the column, we found the column, we found the column, sorry, of uh, Sankarshan and one more. So we found two columns which match the uh, you know, columns which are associated with Sankarshan and one more Vrishni person. And in the 1960s, the last excavations that were done, they found that there were actually eight pillars that had been erected. And all those pillars had been erected in a line. They were not erected at random. And they found the remnants of a temple. That remnants of the temple also I have shown in my book. That this site, it was first. And uh, what they say is that this uh, Heliodorus, he did not come out of the blue and erect a pillar there. They say this site was already, must have already been a sacred site. And he came to, you know, he did not create a sacred site. If you can understand what I'm saying. Archaeologists say he did not come and just create a, a pillar over here in the wilderness. They are saying that this area must have been a very important sacred site, which is why Heliodorus came here. And so there is temple remnants have been found that you can anyone who is interested can see those uh, remains of that temple and eight pillars standing in a line. So that means there was the massive temple for Vasudev Krishna and other members, important members of his family. And they found so much more, which I have discussed. Let's move on to the year 1071 CE with the mm. attacks of Mahmud Ghaznavi. Mm. I would not like to dwell on the attacks per se, but I would like to request you to trace the journey of reconstruction of the temple every time it was destroyed, the temple but, at Mathura. Uh, but Rinku, if I can take one step back and that is to draw the attention of the viewers to what was found in Mathura uh, before what Mahmud Ghaznavi would have destroyed in Mathura. 
because you know that is important i'll just take uh, one or two minutes uh, what i want to say is that so far we have discussed the findings outside mathura we've discussed in afghanistan we've discussed in baltistan we've discussed the western ghats we've discussed besnagar the heliodorus pillar but what is the actual evidence that we have at mathura because we are interested in mathura because mathura has been associated with krishna and his family so it is so interesting uh you know first of all i want to talk to you about a small, mathura was attacked again and again so what we have found in mathura is by accident and no evidence is complete it's all fragments so there is an inscription which is also in fragments but which talks about a family of actors that family of actors was taking part in plays on the life of krishna and that inscription again partial is over 2000 years old so that means that means that at least 2000 years ago in mathura people were staging plays on the life of krishna like you know we have krishna leela now we have ram leela all associated with incidents of their life so this is a tradition which probably goes back thousands of years because it mentions the family and it says that they they sing they dance i mean they are professional actors so this is absolutely fascinating but now to come to the question of what else was found at mathura i will just give two three examples because you know uh, the first example that we have from mathura uh, is of before 15 common era that means just the beginning of the common era and it is before 15 common era why do i say with certainty that this inscription is before 15 common era because it mentions that it is erected in the time of the ruler and that ruler we know ruled till 15 common era so this inscription can be just before the common era but it is not later than 15 common era so now this inscription it is again it's only partial and this inscription is by a person whose name is vasu his name survives and he says that you know i am erecting this structure and he describes the parts of that structure parts of that structure again the inscription is missing mentions a toran toran is an arch and this vasu door jam inscription it is called it is 8 and 1/2 feet tall so 8 and 1/2 feet tall means that it was not an insignificant structure that vasu was creating for vasudev before around not later than 15 common era because 8 and 1/2 feet has survived we don't know how much more was there how tall it was in any case then he says that i am creating this structure and where am i creating it is the important point he says i am erecting this structure at the mahasthan of vasudev now all of us know this much hindi that mahasthan means great place so this first inscription that we have from what is called katra keshav dev mentions vasudev with that place and it mentions that that place is 
the mahasthan mahasthan means very important place what could it be because the inscription rest of the inscription has not survived so we don't know what was going to follow in that was it the birthplace or was it a place connected with some event in krishna's life like the killing of kans so you know people who say that there was a temple at katra keshav dev since ages this is the first evidence they cite because this evidence was found in the british period there were no hindutva historians involved in that if i can put it crudely its findings were published in the epigraphica india the inscription was you know it's very not easy to translate inscriptions because letters are missing you have to be very trained epigraphist to translate it rp chanda who was a very very distinguished indian scholar he translated that inscription and he wrote there that this mahasthan obviously means something very important after that we have a series of inscriptions which talk about krishna temple over there you know other people whatever it ever and just one i will mention the mora well inscription the mora well inscription was uh, found soon after uh, the vasu uh, dorjam inscription and was constructed also soon after it talks about a stone structure it clearly mentions a stone structure for the five vrishni heroes it mentions the word five vrishni heroes who are the five vrishni heroes it is vasudev krishna his elder brother anirudh pradyumna and sambar it mentions the five vrishni heroes it cannot get more explicit than that and in 1911 alexander cunningham found some statues over there those statues there were two male and one female the female statue slightly later the male the head is missing in both the torsos but uh, archaeologists and art historians say that these are statues of vasudev krishna and sankarshan so you know this kind of evidence is absolutely breathtaking and again i'm emphasizing that this is only remnants have survived we we can just guess from this how much we have lost because you know majority of the things would have been lost it's only by chance that a few fragments have survived now to come to your question about the attacks on mathura we all know the first attack was by mehmood gaznavi uh, every indian is very familiar with his name because he has left such a deep impact on the popular imagination because of what he did to the sacred sites and sacred heritage of india so he attacked it and again we have to keep in mind that all the evidence has been recorded by court historians of that period so mehmood gaznavi's attack at mathura has been recorded by his historian utbi he describes the grandeur of the temples at mathura he said we were shocked at the intricate details of the carvings the grand temples he said we had not seen anything like this before so that gives us an eyewitness account of what mathura was like and any of you who is interested can read utbi's account on mathura 
and then he says that how mahmud ghaznavi destroyed that and you know india had never experienced this kind of attack on its sacredness if i can put it this way you know it was an attack on the soul of india so i mean people could not imagine this could happen and you can imagine or visualize how traumatized and shocked they must have been but it is a story that i uh, found again and again you know in other parts of india that mahmud ghaznavi left the place totally devastated but within 100 years of mahmud ghaznavi uh devast you know destroying mathura we have again a partial inscription by a person jhajja now we don't know anything about jhajja from any other source except for this inscription and he says that i have rebuilt the temple of krishna can you imagine a person about whom we know nothing we would not even have known that the temple was rebuilt if this inscription had not survived and this inscription is again in a damaged state but we know that the name of the person is jhajja and he says that i have rebuilt the krishna temple what are we supposed to conclude from this we are supposed to conclude you know people say the hindus have no memory it is such a dishonest statement to make because the assault on our sacred heritage was something that left a deep mark and people remembered it generations centuries later now this jhajja he was not alive when mehmood ghaznavi came to mathura but he that entire generation must have heard it heard it heard it again and apart from that they themselves would have been so committed to their sacred heritage that i mean he didn't get any laurels for rebuilding the temple he did it because he was true to his faith to his tradition to his heritage and to his civilization you know these are things which are very difficult to imagine today when so many people have become so insensitive and dead to their heritage that they were people like this whom we don't even know whom we would have forgotten about except for this partial inscription so this is the first record of a reconstruction of a temple at mathura after that uh, there are records which are recorded by farishta abdullah and other persian historians they are of a little later date but they mention attacks on mathura by kutubuddin uh, aibak feroz tughlaq and sikandar lodi so uh, we are not very clear uh, whether the temple of jhajja was repaired and then attacked or rebuilt or whatever but it is anything is possible the temple could have been attacked not fully destroyed repaired by other believers or destroyed whatever it is but they all mention attacks on temples at mathura and they give vivid descriptions of the intolerance of sikandar lodi for example now uh, and another eyewitness account that we have of the total devastation at mathura 
uh, is a Portuguese uh, traveler who came. Actually, he stayed in Akbar's court also for some time. And he wrote an account and he says, I went to Mathura and there is nothing there. All the temples have been destroyed except one. And he says, the murtis, the images of those broken temples, small, small images, people have, you know, out of devotion for those uh, destroyed, damaged images, they've created small, small temples and they still continue to worship pieces of the demolished temples. So can you imagine? I mean, it is really difficult to imagine that our ancestors could have been so in tune with their heritage. They didn't need anyone to tell them this is your heritage. They knew instinctively. They did it again and again. So this is the account that we have of uh, Father Montserrat. After that, to cut the long story short, uh, Beer Singh Bundela of Orcha, he rebuilt that temple. Uh, he spent a fortune building that temple. Uh, it, that eyewitness accounts of that uh, temple have survived in the writings of uh, two Frenchmen who visited India. Bernier, he was a physician, and Tavernier, he was a jeweler. So their eyewitness accounts of the temple of Jaja, I would recommend that all of you read them because their books are available free on the net. They've also been translated in the British period. And, uh, you know, none of us has anything uh, to say. We're just putting it together. I'm emphasizing this point again and again because there is a marked tendency in certain academic circles when we try to put together parts of our history on the basis of non-negotiable facts, then it is dismissed as propaganda, you know, and it is just dismissed as partisanship. But all this evidence is not the creation of you or me. And these accounts of Bernier, Tavernier, Father Montserrat, they were translated about 60, 70 years ago. Nobody has challenged that the uh, translation is inaccurate. So, uh, in any case, so this temple of Beer Singh Bundela was so huge, it could be seen miles away. And we have two eyewitness accounts. People must go and read these accounts. So, you get an idea of, you know, what, I mean, Beer Singh Bundela, he is from Orcha, but he comes to Mathura to build a temple for Vasudev Krishna. Doesn't it mean something to us? He could have built a temple at Orcha. Why did he come to Mathura? These are questions that we should ask. We should ask honest questions. We should not shy away from whatever evidence. I am not saying that you accept whatever I am saying. I am saying look at it. Find this evidence yourself. So in any case, this is the temple Beer Singh Bundela built. It was destroyed by Aurangzeb. That's a separate story we can discuss later. And because you talked about foreign invasions, the invasions began with Mahmud Ghaznavi and they ended with an even worse invasion in 1757 by the Afghan marauder, looter, whatever you want to call it, Ahmad Shah Abdali. Again, Ahmad Shah's 
attack on Mathura, Vrindavan, etc., is recorded by a camp follower of his, which was translated into English by an ICS officer in 1901. And why does he? What does he say? He says that Ahmed Abdali, when he attacked Mathura, Braj, Govardhan, all these places. He told his soldiers that I'll give you five rupees per head of a kafir that you bring. And five rupees was a huge fortune at that time. And he describes how the uh, soldiers, they came to the camp with so many heads, you know, how they tied up the heads with rope and how villages were, you know, the bodies were lying spread in the villages with no head over there. And it's a very, very gory picture. But uh, we seem to not remember these things or we are asked not to remember these things. You know, we are not, these things are never taught in our schools or colleges. It's a very sanitized, uh, you know, history that we are taught. That's so well said, Professor Jain. Uh, in fact, uh, a common refrain is that if the Hindus were so aggrieved by the destruction of their temples, why did they not ever record it? So can you quote just two examples where the records are found? No, they're not just two. Uh, you will be able to find the records in every instance if you look for it. Uh, I will give you uh, an example which many people will not know. You know, uh, when Mahmud Ghaznavi attacked Somnath, we have an eyewitness account by a Jain who was a minister and he wrote an account of the attack on Somnath. So that is an and we don't even know about it. We say that the Hindus never wrote. And he writes that when Mahmud Ghaznavi was going back, then he saw a Jain temple on the way back. And he thought, let me destroy this also. So this uh, person, his name is Dhanpal. And he writes that when Mahmud Ghaznavi was going back after this, he describes the attack on Somnath. And he says that he saw this Jain temple. So he said, let me destroy this also. And he says that uh, the Mahavir Murti, the Murti of Lord Mahavir that was instated in the temple, Mahmud Ghaznavi tried his best to uproot that image and he could not uproot it. So ropes were tied around that image and elephants were brought in to uproot the image. So this is eyewitness account of a person who was a contemporary of Mahmud Ghaznavi. Uh, then I, if, since you're talking about uh, they didn't record for the 8th century only because I'm not it makes no sense for me because there are so many inscriptions for just the 8th century that is the century when the Arab and Turkish invasions began that is well before Mahmud Ghaznavi for the 8th century only for North India there are at least six inscriptions by Hindu kings of them fighting the Arab and Turkish armies and defeating them. Those inscriptions are all there. They have been translated and can be found 
in various volumes of the epigraphica indica all right then there was a jain minister and jin prabha suri was his name all right so when the the turkish invasions were going on he gave up his job he was also you know working as a minister somewhere and he went to all the jain sacred sites which had been attacked and he wrote a book which survives and he is uh, he tells the community that even the murtis which are khandit you know they have been damaged but he says don't think that they have lost their power so this response that he is giving there is, there are so many other works for the south we have madhura vijay you know it she who is this it is written by the princess of the vijayanagar crown prince imagine people of that level to the lowest they are responding and she writes that you know what has happened in the south the kaveri has turned red with the blood and she is saying that uh, the 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 you know the goddess she has herself come to my husband and given him the sword and said get up and defend your dharma and this kshetra so these are the kind of there is again i am repeating that what must have been produced at that time would have been phenomenal but the amount that has survived and you know this madurai vijay this is a poem written in sanskrit by this crown princess wife it has survived just by accident it's not full it was actually uh, taped with another book so when one scholar was working on that other book in the early 20th century he found this book tagged on to that so he took it out and he got it translated only one copy and that is also not complete so if this one copy was not there we would not even know this lady ganga devi wrote this madurai vijay if that jhajjai's inscription was not there we would not know if this dhanpal we would not have known the inscription that i have told you in the 8th century itself i have got six or seven of them i cannot you know uh, detail them right now but they are all records we did not write history the way modern historians write it obviously but india is a unique case where they defeated the downtrodden the vanquished they wrote they tried to record with whatever means they could professor jain another popular refrain or rhetoric if we may call it is that even the hindu kings desecrated and appropriated the images of their enemy kings this is this is a total well, marxist truth yeah. this is a total marxist attempt to exonerate india's experience of iconoclasm that began in the medieval period it is a total falsehood and i will just give you two three examples uh, the first example is the most important according to me it happened before common era there was a king 
in Kaling, that is present-day Orissa. And he wrote an inscription that is called the Hathi Gumfa inscription that is on a cave in Orissa that still exists. You please look up the internet to get photographs of this Hathi Gumfa cave and the Hathi Gumfa inscription. Now this King Kherwal is his name. He writes in that inscription that, you know, have you got it? Which, which picture is this? Uh, this is from your book, Flight of Deities, Professor Jain. The, the Hathi Gumpa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for showing it. So this, uh, he writes in this Hathi Gumpa inscription that, you know, some time ago, a Nanda king from Magad had come to Kalinga and taken away an image of Kaling Jin. It seems to be a Jain image. So this is before common era. Nanda king came and took away this image from our kingdom. And he writes in this inscription that I, King Kherwal, marched to Magad, went into the royal palace and brought back that image. The Nanda king did not desecrate that image. King Kherwal brought it back. What is the common thing is that it was a shared sacred culture. So, the image may be with you or may be with me, but none of us will desecrate that image. We will worship it because we believe in the same gods, we have the same culture, we have the same values and the same sacred tradition. In this whole period, there are only uh, there's only one case or rather two cases that have some, uh, you know, that uh, there is reference to desecration. And I've mentioned every other case where the Hindus kings takes away an image from a rival kingdom and constructs it. Like uh, the Vijayanagar king Krishnadevaraya. He had a, he waged war on the king of Orissa. He was successful in that war and from Orissa, he brought back an image of Krishna. And in Hampi, there is a Krishna temple in which Krishna Devaraya instated that image for worship. How do we know? Because on the wall of that temple, Krishna Devaraya has written that I brought this image from Kalinga. So is that desecration? The, we have to be very, very careful because the people who are against our culture and civilization and sacred heritage are, you know, they have had their way for a very long time. I examined all these cases and found only two. One was King Harsha of Kashmir and Kalhan who wrote the Raj Tarangini said that he did it because he was influenced by the large number of Turks that he employed in his army. And he said, I call him the Turkish king. So that is one. And another example that Kalhan gives is that, you know, the king of Kashmir, he had promised safe passage to the king of Bengal. And he had said, I swear on this image that I will give you safe passage. But when the king came, the king of Kashmir had him killed. And so the king's soldiers came later to take revenge for the unjust murder of their king. 
So this is very different from there was no religious motive. It was that you know our master has been killed after being told that you know we are going to be uh, swearing on this image. So uh, it and you know there's a King Shashank of Bengal. He's supposed to be one person who was against Buddhist, and that whole story is based on a work that was written in the 12th century. And you know the distinguished uh, Bengali historian R.C. Majumdar, we have all heard of him. He examined, he examined this tale and he said this is such kind of behavior was rare in ancient India. Shashank was a good king. He was given a bad name by this Chinese traveler because he was involved in a past struggle with King Harsh of Kanauj. And King Harsh was, uh, you know, favoring uh, Buddhism and he treated Hyun Sang with tremendous respect and gave him a lot of facilities. So, R.C. Majumdar, we have no reason to doubt his study of this and his analysis. Professor Jain, another thing that I would request you to rebut is this desperate attempt to whitewash Aurangzeb's deeds and paint him as a savior of temples yeah. and Hindus. Yeah. yeah. So You're, where is the truth in this? There is no truth in this at all. It's the story of Aurangzeb is absolutely black. And I'll give you examples. I'm not just talking about Mathura because that Mathura case is well known and it is well documented. You know, uh, Marxist historians joined now by some American scholars they are uh, determined to present Aurangzeb as a great Sufi saint. But the deeds of Aurangzeb are too black to be whitewashed. Uh, they say, I'll give you one example, uh, that you know, uh, when Shah Jahan was ruling in all his grandeur and uh, Aurangzeb was just one of his sons, there were others. So, uh, Aurangzeb sent him to Gujarat as a viceroy or governor. You know, the king's sons were always given important posts. So, uh, he went there. And the, uh, among the things that he did there was that he destroyed a Jain temple. And destroyed means he got an animal cut there and converted it into a masjid. Now, that Jain temple, unfortunately for Aurangzeb, had been built by a very wealthy jeweller. That jeweller used to supply jewels even to the Mughals. So, he had direct access to the Mughals. And Gujarat was a very important port area also, you know, for the Mughals. So, this uh, Shanti Das, he wrote to Shah Jahan, that uh, what kind of behavior is this? It's not acceptable. What have we done that our temple has been desecrated? Now, at that time, Shah Jahan himself was demolishing temples in Banaras. But he realized that Shanti Das cannot be annoyed and the importance of Gujarat for the Mughal economy also. So he recalled Aurangzeb from Gujarat and sent somebody else over there. And uh, told that new governor that you please uh, restore this temple to the Jain community. 
So Shantidas said, now we cannot take back this temple because it has no meaning for us. It has been desecrated with the slaughter of an animal and we don't want it now. And Shantidas uh, told everybody that the murtis that were in that temple have also been desecrated. So now there are no murtis and there is no temple. Now, I'm just mentioning this story. I'll just conclude it, but I'll come back to Aurangzeb. So about 100 years later or 70, 80 years later, when Aurangzeb had died, Shanti Das had died and the Mughal Empire was in decline, then the Jain community one day brings out two images in a public procession that were part of that temple. They had hidden them underground in some basement while the threat was there. And they brought them about out in public, uh, you know, procession and resumed worship of them. Uh, but to continue uh, the story of Aurangzeb, so this is one act of his when he was not the emperor, when his father was the emperor. Now, uh, you know, left historians they will not mention this, but the farmans of Shah Jahan to the Mughals have survived. And we have an eyewitness of foreigner who came to Gujarat and visited that temple and his account is there. So, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect crime, if I can use modern, modern terminology. There will be evidence somewhere or the other. You have to look for it. So, uh, now leftist historians say that, you know, Aurangzeb was uh, pushed to take a fanatic line because, you know, in the war of succession, uh, he had to get the sympathy of the Muslim elite and the ulema against his brother Dara. Okay. Even if we accept that, there are doubts about that argument. But supposing right now we accept that, yes, Aurangzeb took a hard line. After he won the battle, Dara was executed. Dara was no, no brother had survived. Everyone was killed. And Aurangzeb was firmly on the Mughal throne. So in the first year when he was on the throne, there was no challenge from any brother. Isn't it? No brother had survived. In the first year as emperor, he went to Kashi. He ordered the destruction of a temple there. Kriti Visheshwar temple. That is in the first year of his reign. And again, you'll be surprised that, you know, there is a pond over there. Not a pond, I can say a small pool. Uh, that marks this place where the first, second, third reconstructions of that temple took place. So that temple was rebuilt once, twice, thrice was destroyed each time. But even then, on Mahashivratri, the devotees would visit that site, make an offering, and the understanding was that the people in the masjid would take away the offerings. They were, but the devotees went there where the first, second, and third temple had been destroyed. So this is the, you know, commitment. And then, of course, we know about Aurangzeb's 
very famous acts in Mathura, Kashi, etc. But I've just given you two examples to show you that we should be aware of what people are trying to hide from us. Why is it that no uh, leftist scholars are discussing this destruction of these temples? How many left historians have discussed Aurangzeb's action as viceroy of Gujarat when his father was the king? And why did he in the first year of his reign go and destroy this temple in Kashi? No, and last thing that is very important, uh, you know, I'm not discussing Mathura and Kashi and all right now. I want to tell you the last days of Aurangzeb. You know, he was, he lived till he was 90. So in his mid 80s, there is an order of his which has survived. You know, the beauty of this thing is that evidence is all there. So he sends an order to his people in Gujarat. He says, you know, these Hindus, you know, at the time of festivals, they make these terracotta murtis. You know, in Diwali, we all go and buy Lakshmi Ganesh ki wo murti and lete hai na market se. Mitti ki bani hoti hai. Every house, we see that. So he says, you know, they make these murtis. So you kindly make sure that they do not make these terracotta murtis. Now, is this the act of a Sufi? Make sure that they do not make these terracotta murtis. And can you imagine that tradition, the Hindus never give up. That tradition continues till today. And then the final, the order says that go to Somnath. The temple has been destroyed. All right. But they go on worshipping there. So he says go there. If they have resumed worship at Somnath, Destroy it in such a way that worship can never be resumed again. So, you know, this attempt to uh, paint Aurangzeb as a great Sufi, I don't think it will uh, appeal to anyone who has a sense of history and who knows something about history. And, you know, Aurangzeb has got a special place in the minds of people of the subcontinent. Because the attacks were too, too brutal. You know, in Mathura, we know that, uh, you know, the Murtis were taken away and they were buried under the steps of Jahanara's mosque at Agra so that the devotees climb on them. These, these are deliberate, calculated insults of a faith which was non-combative, it never advocated fight. Professor Jain, I would like to read out an excerpt from your book, Flight yeah, of please. Deities. Yeah, please. Page 7 on the Somnath Temple. This account is from Mirat Ahmadi hmm. and in which says that in 1702-03, the 84-year-old Emperor Aurangzeb asked for information on the situation in Somnath where early in his reign, the temple had been demolished and worship discontinued. He ordered that if Hindus were found to have revived worship, the temple should be destroyed in such a manner that no trace of it remained. And you have given the, rightfully you have given the title of the book. 
Mirat hai Ahmedi. It's not a Sanskrit work. It is a work in Persian recorded by a Persian historian. As I begin my next question, uh, Professor Jain, I would like to quote from page 137 of Vasudev Krishna and Mathura, and then I'll frame the question. Uh, this is second part of the report of Alexander Cunningham, mm. in which he observes that inscriptions reused as pavement slabs in the mosque showed that the temple was still standing in the year 1663. He's always he ta- he's obviously talking about the Eidga that has been erected in place of the temple. So no, did the Hindus try and reclaim no, no. this place? No, just read that again. There's a just please read that again. G. In his second report of 1862-63, Cunningham observed that inscriptions reused as pavement slabs in the mosque showed that the temple was still standing in the year 1663. Now, now, which... just, now let Jee. me just clarify. This is the temple that was built by Beer Singh Bundela. That was seen by Tavernia and Bernia. So, you know, uh, what happens is that uh, even today, many people Tourists who go to a place, they write there, na. Hum yahan pe aaye the, apna naam likhte the. So at that time, people who had gone to the temple, some of their they had probably inscribed that you know we have been here. So those inscriptions, when that temple was destroyed and the Eidga made, then much of the temple material was used, na. As is the case in so many places, that temple material is used to build the mosque. So those inscriptions were used as pavements for the Eidga. So Manucci saw that in temple. That means when Manucci saw it, it was still standing there. Because the inscription shows that it was standing there. So this inscription at Mathura was destroyed in 1670. Alexander Cunningham is saying it proves that the temple was standing there till 16 because the inscription, the date is given. The temple, it confirms that the temple was destroyed in 1670 because the pavement has parts of the inscriptions from that temple. Which brings me to the question, Professor Jain. Uh, what is the position of the cases now in uh, Mathura? And did uh, some were some appeals also made during the time of British magistrates magistrates to reclaim the land? We uh, know clearly from Cunningham's report that the Eidga mm. stood in place of the temple, mm. and parts of the temple were used in the construction of the Eidga mosque. Mm. Now, were there any efforts or appeals made by the Hindus to reclaim that land as their own? And how did the British hear them out? Were they fair in their judicial proceedings? Now, uh, one or two things I want to clarify. One is that the Eidga uh, was built on the site of the temple and Alexander Cunningham saw the plinth of the temple. So it did not cover the entire, because the temple was huge. The Eidga was not huge. It was built on the temple, but it did not occupy the entire space of the temple. So this is as far, and he 
measured the temple. He said it was on the basis of that, I conclude that it is one of the largest in India. And he also said that the Eidga or whatever it is, the masjid, he calls it, it was in a very dilapidated, it was a dilapidated structure now, he says. You know, that there was nothing left in that structure actually. And uh, probably, you know, excavations could take place. Uh, of course, no excavations were taken, took place because whatever reasons. Now, what happens is that in 1770, the Marathas get control of the Mathra area and they declare Katra Keshav Dev as government land. When they lose to the East India Company, the East India Company continues the Maratha policy of treating it as government land. Now, they at one point they auction, they put this Katra Keshav Dev for auction and it is purchased by Raja Patni Mal of Banaras. He was not a Raja in that sense, he was a banker. So he was sold the entire Katra Keshav Dev, that is 13.37 acres. So uh, they, Katra Keshav Dev was sold in auction to Raja Patnimal of Banaras. Raja Patnimal was registered as the owner in the British Revenue and Judicial Records. After Raja Patnimal, his successors were regarded as the owners of Katra Keshav Dev. Katra Keshav Dev meant 13.37 acres. It was never partitioned or divided among the heirs. It was just one unit, Katra Keshav Dev. Now, uh, you know, in 1944, the heirs of uh, Raja Patnimal, they had some small loan, which was, you know, not much about 13,000 rupees or some such thing. And they were not in a position to repay that loan. So, uh, Jugal Kishore Bidla, say Jugal Kishore Bidla, they told him that, you know, he wanted to buy this land. They said, you just repay that loan. So, Raja, uh, this Jugal Kishore Bidla buys that land, Katra Keshav Dev. And he creates a trust, Sri Krishna Janbhumi Trust. The objective was to build a grand temple for Krishna, Lord Krishna. So, uh, the heirs of Patnimal are out of the scene and Raja uh, Jugal Kishore Pidla, sorry, comes in. But I'm sorry I missed your question. Uh, your question was litigation. So, when, uh, I'll just go back. When Raja Patnimal brought Katra Keshav Dev from the British, at that time, litigation starts from what we can call Eidga party and the heirs of Raja Patnimal. And they go on filing one case after another. The sum and substance of these cases is that the Eidga party did not win a single case in the British judicial system. Every case they lost, every case the British judges heard the case, examined the documents and gave their verdict with great care and thought. Lots of those 
judgments of the British judges have been produced in my book, I think for the first time. Those cases affirm that every bench of British judges regarded the Eidgah party as having no claim. And it says that you are like hardened litigants. You go on coming back when you have no case. So this is, uh, so they won every case. Then I told you that uh, Raja Patni Mal's heirs sold the thing to Jukal Kishore Birla. In 1951, he created a trust for the building of the Krishna temple. We have a third party also entering the case of yes. the Krishna yeah. Yeah. temple. That will be the last uh, thing. Then we can open it to questions if you think so. Ji, ji, ji. And also, I would like you to quote Vishnu Jain's case here. So yes. that we can throw open yeah, others. Yeah, yeah. This is the last discussion. Uh, so this, you see, uh, up till 1951, when Jugal Kishore Birla creates the Sri Krishna Janamsthan Trust for building a Ram temple, he creates a trust which is headed by Madan Mohan Malviya. All right. Now, things are normal and clear till that time. And all the documents are there with, I have produced them in my book and they will be easily accessible to everyone in the public who wants to look at them. Now, what happens is that suddenly uh, there's a total uh, upheaval and something that is totally unexpected happens. See, as I've said, from first century common era, we are tracing the Hindu presence in Mathura. And all the cases of in the British period, the judicial records, the Eidgah party does not win even a single case. The archaeological findings of Alexander Cunningham, they all are solid evidence. Now, suddenly in 1968, there is a body known as Sri Krishna Seva Sangh. Now, this Seva Sangh has no, is not a judicial entity. It has no right to decide the fate of Katra Keshav Dev. It cannot sell the land. It cannot bifurcate the land. It cannot do anything to the land. But suddenly in 1968, this body enters into an agreement with the Eidgah party, which has lost every case till now. And it enters into an agreement with the Eidgah party and it gives three acres of Katra Keshav Dev to the Eidgah party. Now, this case has been filed in 2000, year 2000 by Vishnu Jain, lawyer Vishnu Jain and others. So, the entire evidence of 1868 is, I have no contribution to make to this. I cannot vouch uh, for the, you know, how valid it is, how weighty it is. I have just gone by the case that they have filed in the Mathura District Court. According to them, in 1968, three acres was handed over to Idga party. And according to them, the Idga party has built the present Idga on this three acres of Katra Keshavte. Now, again, I'm saying that this, I have nothing to contribute to this. I'm just reporting something that has happened in 1968. Now, why is this important? Because if the land has been handed over in 1968, 
where is the present Eidgah situated? Because Cunningham said it's a dilapidated condition. That's the last eyewitness account that we have. The present Eidgah is not dilapidated. Where is that three acres? Is the present Eidgah built on those three acres? If it is built on those three acres, then the People's Worship Act of 1991 does not apply to it because it is constructed after 1947, not before. The People's Worship Act says that you cannot change the character of any religious structure except Ayodhya. It has to remain what it was in 1947. So this is a question that has not yet come up for hearing. Uh, they are they're not able to get the hearing right now. You know, it gets postponed, 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 tariq pe tariq, as they say. So again, I'm saying this is something which I have reported the case as it is filed in the Mathra district court. Till 1951, till the creation by Jugal Kishore Birla, all the evidence is with me. This 1968 evidence I have just reported the case that has been filed in Mathra District Court, how valid it is, how weighty it is, is something that I cannot comment on. We have to wait for the court to begin the hearings. Namaste, uh, Dr. Meenakshi Ji. Uh, what a wonderful talk. I mean, uh, we just wanted to go on and on. Thank you. Such, such wonderful work. We have no words really uh, accept a lot of gratitude. Um, my question actually uh, is twofold in a sense. One is uh, this immense amount of research that you have done on the epigraphic evidence. And as you are aware, because you yourself have uh, taught history for decades uh, in Delhi, that somehow in our history, at least in school history, I can say very fine, we don't give much importance to epigraphic evidence. Yeah. And even now, if you notice, there is a bias. You know, we are looking at other things. We've got archaeological findings of you know, this and that historian having written something and so on. And then, of course, the bias, as you say, which is there. But epigraphic evidence is actually very, very important. And yet it has not gotten its due. So what do you feel you as an expert and such a renowned uh, person yourself? Is there some way you can influence? I always talk of because, you know, we have to think of solutions. So much damage has been done, as you're right. Yes. We've all been taught lies. Yes. Sanitized, I think you were being polite. Yeah. I would say we've just been taught lies uh, yes. for everything. So can this be corrected by getting relevant epigraphic evidence to subjects which are important and themes? Can this be done in as our history syllabus is going to be sort of reworked in the uh, next few years? Um, uh, you see, you, you have made a very pertinent point. Epigraphic evidence cannot be questioned. It cannot be open to flights of interpretation. And all the epigraphic evidence that we have, it has been deciphered decades and decades ago. And it has not been challenged till now. So it's very difficult to challenge the interpretations or the, you know, the way it has been deciphered. Now, uh, at least in Delhi University, I think we hardly paid any attention to epigraphic evidence. Uh, but that is the crux of the matter, as you say, that it is something that, now I don't know how it can be done at the school level, but I think that important epigraphs, like the Heliodorus pillar, the Nana Ghat inscription, which talks about Krishna worship in the Western region before common era, 
you know coins also are very important you know uh, but it requires it requires a total different mindset to convey all this and uh, uh, since the process of writing history uh, books has not yet begun i don't know what frameworks they will uh, you know use and who's going to write those books but uh, i totally agree with you on the importance of epigraphic evidence the whole history of mathura has been reconstructed on the basis of epigraphic evidence you know as you are saying that it is such an important source uh, but uh, you know what uh, i think that we are not in that process but what we can contribute uh, i always tell uh, you know people who are who attend my talks who are not historians or going to be historians that you know in your area from whichever region you come or wherever you are living you should go around and try to record what you can you know like this oral culture this culture of people walking miles and miles on pilgrimage at least start making videos of that it will be all be forgotten you know so in your area if there is inscription if there is a monument at least record it so that it cannot be wished away you know you you see people fasting and going on pilgrimage they will not eat or drink water for days and days all those things deserve to be recorded because they are the carriers and preservers of our heritage but i appreciate your question and it's a very pertinent question i wholeheartedly agree with it but uh, at the school level i don't know what is going to happen with the new education policy and until the new textbooks are out we cannot pass a judgment but uh, uh, i feel that internet has been a very very powerful tool in empowering everyone you don't have to be a historian you can go to those sites yourself on the internet see the base nagar pillar inscription you can form your own judgments now you know what i have seen people go to these sites and they prepare videos and they put them on the net that you know this cave then this cave then this cave so it is arousing a lot of interest in a subject that was threatening to be dead because of the contribution of certain uh, group of historians they had made it into a real uh, you know a subject which was lost all its popularity it was full of jargon imported ideologies imported frameworks you are not looking at india through indian eyes india through imported ideologies uh in my question is that in the ram mandir case we have seen that the eminent historians initial stand on the case was that the uh, babri masjid was built on vacant land yes now as soon as the archaeological evidences uh, started coming up unearthed by the asi team mm-hmm. which consisted even of muslim archaeologists yes the stand of these historians turned 180 degree instantly and they said that no 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 these structures may be may be buddhist or may be jain structures mm. but the alabad high court rejected these opinions and uh, now how water right case is the krishna janmabhoomi case as compared to the ram janmabhoomi case uh, according to me nehar the evidence at mathura is far more compelling than at ayodhya 
that is not to say that the evidence at ayodhya was not compelling it was very compelling and as you have rightly said the asi excavations made the left historians nervous because the asi excavations and the team that excavated was evenly matched it had it had people from both communities so that afterwards you cannot say that it was only one community that was excavating the asi excavations showed continuous occupation of that site from the second millennium bc and they showed that that site was never used for residential or habitational purposes it was always a sacred site and they found a series of sacred structures now as these sacred structures went on emerging then as you said the as the left historians went on changing their stand but i regard ayodhya as very important vindication of the non left perspective and ayodhya played a very important role in lowering the prestige of the left historians because no left historian or archaeologist survived with his reputation intact the allahabad high court and the supreme court they passed strictures against each one of them they said you are trying to stop a settlement you are supposed to help us you are trying to hinder us from our work so uh, ayodhya of course the evidence was very strong but the evidence at, at mathura is of various kinds in uh, ayodhya there was no epigraphic evidence except for some minor evidences and the main epigraphic evidence was what fell from the walls of babri masjid when that masjid was the vishnu hari inscription uh, and there were no statues of lord ram that were found there whereas in mathura archaeologists say these are statues of vasudev and sankarshan and the epigraphic evidence is too numerous plays being held at mathura vasu inscription moravel inscription and so many other inscriptions that i have not quoted but it's a wealth of information one of the things is that we have had to prove the historicity of rama we have had to prove the historicity of krishna and so on and it is very strange uh, when you see the treatment of scholars when people treat things like iliad odyssey or the bible yeah people do assume that there is a historical core to all these texts yes and yes there may be other accretions and so on and so forth mm. and uh, this is consensus but in the case of all these hindu holy sites mm. what we have seen is that indian historians have been trying to overturn every kind of consensus whether it is the historicity of these epic heroes or whether it is the historicity of their uh, temples you know they have been trying to overturn 200 year old consensus all the time what is the reason for this uh, your question is very very pertinent and it's very obvious that this is happening but why is it happening there are any number of reasons possible uh, one is that uh, you know to shield iconoclasm from its religious and ideological origins uh you know we have had invasions of northwestern india before the coming of the arabs and turks you know we had the shakas we had the kushans we had 
Bactrian Greeks, none of them uh, devastated this land the way these people did. And in fact, the people who came before Arabs and Turks, they became part of the cultural milieu of this country. Some became Buddhists, some became Shaivites, some became, you know, uh, Jains. So uh, it is a very, very different experience. Now, why this hostility towards our culture and civilization? One is that uh, it is to protect history from remembering the iconoclasm that happened in the subcontinent. And why do they want to protect it? I think because a substantial majority in the wake of partition did not migrate. They stayed behind and there was the deliberate attempt to delink the faith from what happened. That is one explanation that, you know, because you have a minority, a substantial number of people who did not migrate. So we have to rewrite history to present it in a very different manner from what it was remembered as. I'm not saying that anybody today is saying that the sins of the past had to be visited on people in the present. That's not anyone's argument. But that doesn't mean that you rewrite history and erase the wounds of a civilization. India was badly scarred. Let us be very clear about it. If it was not so badly scarred, why would people go on uh, making those temples again and again? Now, according to some people, there is a general animosity of Abrahamic faiths to non-Abrahamic faiths. And India happens to be one of the victims of that. Uh, in uh, Ayodhya, judgment is very important mm. because in last hundred pages, you know, the judges say that Hindus can simply take up all the places which has been, you know, uh, which has Hindu things in it and the Hindu architecture. So that is what I understood. But none of the lawyers who are defending us in courts are using that Ayodhya judgment as a precursor. And it is very, I think it is very important to do that. Now, in, uh, in case of uh, all these destructions that happened, also the archaeologists even today are saying that all these temples and other monuments, that Hindu monuments, they are between 1600, around 1600 years old. Now that is not the complete truth. And uh, we need to do something about it. So what do you say in terms of all these temples, how old they might be historically or archaeologically? Uh, any idea on that? Sir, because, uh, um, sir, sir, if I can uh, understand right? your question, see all the, temp 
all the temples were not built at the same time so it's very difficult to give a common date for the antiquity of all temples for example the sun temple in multan that was the first temple to suffer at the hands of iconoclasts that sun temple was visited by the chinese traveler huan sang in the 7th century but that does not mean that all the temples in india were built in the 7th century some were built in the 5th century some were built in the 10th century so it is we cannot give one date as the date of the antiquity of all temples we have to study each temple as a individual case i have a question about textual references to uh, krishna so in buddhist literature the buddha often connects himself to the solar race and uh, uh, here and there in some sutras you also hear about dhananjaya being the king of indraprastha so does buddha try to bring out a connection with uh, krishna also for himself i am uh, not aware of the full corpus uh, but uh, it is very interesting to note that buddha is finally accommodates as an avatar of vishnu you know yes buddha is assimilated as an avatar of vishnu and he is regarded as a final avatar so there is a connection no religion of india was isolated from the other now uh, the jains they say that the 22nd tirthankar was related to krishna and there is a statue that has been found in mathura where the 22nd tirthankar is the central figure and vasudev and sankarshan are shown on the sides so these things as you know this is against this is for it was a holistic kind of situation and there were no artificial barriers why was buddha assimilated as an avatar of vishnu obviously there is a deeper truth why do the jains say that the 22nd tirthankar was a cousin of krishna we all know delhi is a you know a historic city i mean um, it's not uh, hidden from anybody uh, it's been there from pandavas era at least we that we know so have you ever come across any evidence of an ancient temple being there in delhi no Thank that's you. a very very important question that no temple before the 18th century survived in delhi they were all devastated because delhi was the seat of the sultanate period so no old temple in fact what are you talking about delhi in the entire north india there is hardly any temple which is there before the 18th century why do i say 18th century because that time the mughal power was in decline and the european trading companies had started coming to india so at that time the hindus felt that you know now that repressive oppressive rule is over and we can now start reclaiming our heritage publicly why i say publicly because hinduism the hindus jains buddhists they all practiced their religion in the privacy of their homes but they were not constructing in public places 
in the 18th century, they feel that that oppressive rule is over. And we have people of every community, such frenzy of activity. You know, there's a reverend Shering who was in India in this period. And he's written a book on Banaras that is available on the net. And some of you should read it. What does he say in that? He says it is very surprising that our rule, that is the rule of the English, has given such an impetus to temple building. Modern Banaras is the gift of the Marathas. So many other ancient cities, so many communities got together to rebuild. This situation is very different from what was there in the south. In the south, you still see Chola temples standing. Though south also suffered terribly, as I've written in my book, Flight of Deities. But in North India, can you tell me how many ancient 10th century temples there are? It was just not Delhi, you know, it was because this was the center of Turkish and Mughal power. So it suffered terribly. But thank you for asking this question. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful conversation, Professor Jain. Thank you for bringing out hidden histories and telling us the story of how our ancestors kept their sacred heritage alive and continued in the face of brutalities and relentless attacks. Thanks for clearing the cobwebs around many doubts and clearing the misconceptions around many histories. Thank you. Thank you, viewers. Jai Hind. Jai Bharat.